This podcast is sponsored by Trustmakers, providing media relations and communications training in Canada and internationally for over 20 years. We help scientists, experts, and leaders to build trust and support through clear, honest, and authentic communication. Find out more at trustmakers.ca. This episode is also brought to you in partnership with the Invasive Species Centre. The centre works to increase the prevention and management of invasive species in Canada. Find out more at invasivespeciescenter.ca. The two-legged terrestrial Canuck inhabits the snowy regions of North America. Each winter it hibernates or migrates to the southern United States. As it emerges or returns in the spring, the terrestrial Canuck begins moving about, building campfires, floating boats, and driving great distances between various bodies of water. As it moves, it often transports invasive plant and animal species from one location to the next, displacing local species and creating havoc across the country. In this way, the Canuck unknowingly helps alien species in their continuing invasion of our land and water. For a more complete story of the two-legged terrestrial Canuck, why not contact the Canadian Hominid Wildlife Service in Ottawa? Each day, we make many decisions about our health, safety, and the environment. From the food we eat and staying cyber-safe, to dealing with public health emergencies and dealing with climate change. Each month, the Own the Science podcast will reveal how often little-known public sector science has a profound impact on Canadians' day-to-day life. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Own the Science. I'm your host, John Nelson McKay. And I'm your host, Tralkaloje, filling in for Andrea Morantz. In this episode of Own the Science, we're finishing up our series on invasive species in Canada. We've covered the creatures who arrive on land and in the water, but what about those who get help from us? In this episode, we'll look at how human accomplices are supporting invaders. We'll examine the fascinating case of Shakespeare enthusiasts who released birds that quickly became invasive. But first, let's get into one of the ways some invasive species are getting out. Many of us have pets at home. As long as they stay in your house, pets aren't an invasive species. But when they get out, that's when the problems can start. People releasing pets like fish and turtles into the environment is a real concern. And it's a widespread issue. Terrell, you talked to the Invasive Species Centre about this. What did you find out? Well, as you mentioned, John, pets are really popular. In fact, there are more than 28 million pets in Canada. Our population is 38 million people, so that's a pretty sizable number. This is also a growing industry, especially recently. People working from home and spending more time at home during the pandemic has really given it a boost. Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada expects pet ownership to continue to climb in the years ahead. Of all the pets in Canada, the largest category is actually fish. There are around 8.5 million fish in aquariums around the country. 
This compares to about 8.2 million cats and 7.2 million dogs. The most common pets to be set free are goldfish and turtles. Whether it's an intentional release of a pet or accidental, these pets turned invasive species can have devastating consequences. This is a priority for the Invasive Species Center who runs the Don't Let It Loose campaign. The campaign is all about encouraging pet owners to not release any type of pet into the environment. Colin Casson is the policy manager with the Invasive Species Center. He has this issue top of mind. So if we were out going for a walk to any stormwater pond, you know, a stormwater pond behind your house or mine, back behind a subdivision, unfortunately we'll often find species like goldfish, koi, red-eared sliders, the turtle species, and a few others as well. And usually what we find is those are well-intentioned individuals who would go and release pets on compassionate grounds, understandably. But unfortunately, those pet releases can have strong negative impacts on the wildlife that otherwise would be using those habitats. So it might be native fish, it might be native birds, uh, and many other native turtles, for instance, as well, can be outcompeted by those invasive species. And we've seen a number of examples of, of again, well-intentioned individuals with their heart in the right place, no doubt, unfortunately going and releasing invasive species that are widely available. So don't let it loose is a really important catchphrase, is an important message that we and our partners use to try and prevent that habit of, again, well-intentioned people releasing invasive species from their aquarium or from their backyard pond into the natural environment because they have such strong but unknown ecological impacts. One of the main species that Colin and other experts are concerned about is the common goldfish. Goldfish are popular as pets around the world, and so too are goldfish releases. This fish is a native species from Asia, but in North America, they are an invasive species if you happen to see one in the wild. In fact, goldfish are considered one of the most widespread invasive fish in North America. And this isn't a recent problem either. There are reports of goldfish being released as far back as in the 1600s in the United States. In the wild, goldfish can grow to be as big as a football. They can easily outcompete native species for food, and their feeding habits affect water clarity, which can destroy a habitat. Plus, they reproduce quickly. The Invasive Species Center says there are established populations of goldfish in every single Canadian province. Those stormwater ponds Colin mentioned earlier can be hotspots for goldfish releases. They are often located right in the middle of neighborhoods. If enough goldfish are released in one, it can completely change the pond. There's a great example of an urban pond in southeastern Alberta that is, is a good local angling spot. It's in a fairly urban community and one of the best examples of close-by nature for many people. There's beautiful trails uh, adjacent to the waterway. It's a really nice kind of natural space. And unfortunately, a few years ago, somebody had released uh, just a small number of goldfish. And those goldfish outcompeted the native species that the anglers were drawing to that pond and, and using as that pond as that resource provided. Unfortunately, the local municipality there had to draw down that pond and remove all of the goldfish, uh, which was really costly and really challenging. And unfortunately, the remaining native species, you know, many of those uh, paid the price regrettably as well. And uh, when that pond was restocked and restored, it became a, a nice community asset again. Anglers were able to come back once the goldfish had been entirely removed from that pond 
and able to use that resource again. And the reason why I think this is such an important story is because a few years after that had happened, after the restocking, one of the local anglers there who was familiar with the, the challenging time when the municipality had, had kind of been forced to take action there and remove goldfish and basically hit reset on that pond, that angler saw somebody coming down from some of the houses down towards the pond with a bucket full of fish. And uh, it, kudos to the angler because he, he approached the person who was about to release that bucket of fish and said, uh, and had a look, you know, realized that there were goldfish and, and koi ready to be released back into the pond. I, I suppose this person carrying the bucket was well-intentioned, but perhaps didn't understand the backstory of that pond. And uh, thankfully, the angler was able to guide the person who would have released the fish otherwise in, into a better decision, which of course is not to be releasing uh, goldfish or any other pet species into the natural environment. Can't, can't help but, but worry about what some of the consequences would be if that angler wasn't there. Um, would have been a really challenging situation for the pond, and unfortunately that would have been another community asset that, that wouldn't be quite as, as useful as it is today, thankfully. So I think it speaks to the empowerment of, of just people seeing and being aware and helping share that information to their peers, just to help us all protect whether it's a stormwater pond that's a hotspot for angling, or whether it's even a more pristine natural environment that we might be, uh, be going and visiting and, and making use of. Invasive species and intentional introductions of pets and invasive species is a really important pathway for us to address. That's important information to know for those of us with fish at home. But what about the fish we might have who don't make it? Is there a proper way we should be sending them off? Yes, and this is something I wasn't aware of either. If you have a fish that doesn't make it, you should not flush it away. Even though we've seen this example in movies like Finding Nemo, whether your fish is alive or not, the toilet should not be their escape route. It's true. Even flushing a, a goldfish who may not be with us anymore down the toilet is, is not a best practice. And one of the reasons for that is because moving around pet species, you know, can move not just the species itself, but back to those hitchhikers. We don't often think about what are the bacteria or pathogens that might also be associated or present, even in a goldfish that's no longer with us. Um, so the best practice for people, there are, it's kind of a fun product that's available, but there are goldfish coffins that are available uh, to, you know, give an opportunity for us to send off a, a no longer with us goldfish in, in the best way. And, you know, one of the best practices there is, is if the fish is no longer alive, just getting rid of it through, you know, burying in a, in a the backyard would be an okay approach. Definitely prevents kind of that escape opportunity of, of bacteria or pathogens or any other kind of uh, challenging things there, or even just disposing of in the garbage is another suitable alternative. So we know we shouldn't let our pet fish loose. Are there other pets that humans are helping transform into invasive species? Yes, turtles are another animal on experts' radar. The most common pet turtle you'll find is the red-eared slider. They are a native species from the Mississippi River area. But because of how common they are as a pet, these turtles are quite the world travelers. You can find them on every continent in the world except Antarctica, and their main way to travel when people set them free. These turtles can start off really small and cute, but they don't stay small. As they grow, pet owners can be overwhelmed with the size and care they need and decide to just let them go. Colin says those urban ponds you'll find in cities across Canada are also popular spots for people to release their turtles. When red-eared sliders are present at a site, other turtle species tend not to be thriving. 
So native species of, of turtles, things like Blanding's turtles, spotted turtles, even northern map turtles. Unfortunately, when we see those species present, when we see red-eared sliders, which are the invasive and commonly available turtle present, uh, we see declines in native turtle abundance. And because many of those are, are regulated species at risk, those other turtles, those native turtle species, those species are, are really kind of our, our central uh, focal point, I think, for biodiversity conservation and species at risk conservation across Canada. So yet another great reason to not let it loose. If the environmental impacts aren't enough to convince you, it's actually illegal. There are federal regulations under the Fisheries Act that prohibit releasing any aquatic species into a body of water if it's not a native species. So what happens if someone does have a goldfish or turtle they can't keep anymore? What should they do? Well, the Invasive Species Center says you can talk to the pet store you bought the fish or turtle from to see if you can give it back. You could also give it to someone else who owns an aquarium. You may even be able to donate it to a classroom or a school. Colin says it's also important to do that research ahead of time. You should know what you're getting into before you show up at the pet store. That's the important message, I think, is just to understand that some of these commonly available invasive pets are fairly long-lived, whether it's, you know, red-eared sliders that can live for very long periods of time, decades and decades in some instances, and just understanding that it's a fairly long-term commitment. Personally, I don't have quite as much luck with goldfish, but they can be fairly long-lived as well in the right conditions. So I think the, you know, the important opportunity here is for consumers to be well-educated on how long of a commitment a pet is going to be, and also what the most appropriate action should be uh, should that relationship come to a close. Another area where humans have helped invasive species thrive is with plants. About 80% of the invasive plants in Canada can trace their roots back to Europe. It lines up with early immigration from that part of the world and people bringing plants or seeds with them, or those plants hitching a ride on ships. Then once they got here, these plants easily established because of a similar climate. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency has identified more than 1,200 plants that are not native to Canada. Almost 500 of those are considered invasive. There are invasive plants in all provinces and territories, and many have been intentionally introduced. Colin says you might even stumble upon invasive plants at your local greenhouse. We do see many invasive plant species being available commercially through horticultural pathways all across Canada. Now, the specific species tend to vary depending on provincial regulations. Uh, Some provinces regulate horticultural species, uh, more species than others, perhaps. So some commonly available species are things like periwinkle, goutweed or snow on the mountain or bishop's wheat to some, you know, yellow, uh, yellow flag iris, a number of aquatic invasive plants. Many of those species are fairly widely available throughout Canada in horticultural um, retailers. And many retailers are taking an opportunity just to provide additional support to consumers to help educate them. We're seeing, for instance, in the province of Ontario, uh, an outreach program called Grow Me Instead, which is a great example of arming consumers with the right information at point of sale to help them make informed decisions. Sometimes in some jurisdictions, especially in the U.S., we're seeing invasive plants be labeled with invasive plant labels on them just to help people understand that, you know, although that plant may be available, ecologically that might not be the best choice for you or your nearby natural environments. Um, Because again, these 
Plants aren't necessarily the problem when they stay to the specific pot or the specific garden bed that they're planted in, but the reason why they're invasive is because they don't respect that boundary. They do tend to jump ship over into nearby natural environments, whether it's through intentional releases and, and a helping hand, or even just unintentional releases via seed setting, or perhaps if we're removing some um, or digging out or expanding a garden bed and want to remove some clean fill. Sometimes we'll see them move around that way too. So for all kinds of reasons, many um, uh, invasive plants that, that may be available commercially are not a best practice. And I'm also really encouraged too in terms of the, the positive side of the conversation at the much more widely available uh, plant material that's originating from native plant material. We're seeing a really strong movement and uh, for years, unfortunately, native plant material wasn't widely available. But we're starting to see larger retailers start to respond to community need and, and market-driven uh, opportunities and making native plants more widely available, which is a really strong opportunity for us and I think a great suitable alternative to some of those invasive plants which historically have more, been more widely available. So we know not to release our pets and try to avoid choosing invasive plants at the greenhouse. But whether assisted by humans or not, invasive species should be top of mind for all of us. What's at stake here if invasive species can't be controlled? Colin says there's a lot at risk. Whether you're concerned about the dollars and cents aspect of controlling invasive species, or you're worried about how Canada's landscape could change if invasive species take hold. One of the factors that's on the line in terms of ecological impacts of invasive species tends to be biodiversity. Invasive species are the second leading cause of species extinctions globally. So if we're concerned about protecting biodiversity, if we're concerned about protecting species at risk, mitigating invasive species impact is a really important action we can take. They also have other impacts that are important. Economics is another notable consideration. The Invasive Species Centre has recently polled municipalities all across Canada and tried to better understand what are the dollars and cents related to invasive species and how much are these things costing us. And we see that municipalities and conservation authorities and other important land managers are spending a tremendous amount of resources managing invasive species. So removing, cutting down, and managing hazards for things like emerald ash borer on native ash trees, removing those trees and replacing them is extremely costly. Invasive grasses like Phragmites can clog up roadside ditches, which can cost over $1,100 per linear kilometer of roadway, which municipalities are um, often responsible for managing and footing the bill on from a maintenance perspective. So really, really challenging economic considerations at play due to invasive species. And the third way to think about invasive species in terms of what's on the line are social uses of landscape or the human element. So we see species like Phragmites, or European water chestnut impacting how we can access waterfront. We also see species like emerald ash borer impacting a native tree species, black ash, which is important for indigenous communities, specifically on basket making. Uh, so we see cultural impacts of invasive species as well, or impacts of invasive species on the human element, which are really problematic. We've discussed throughout the series the impact of invasive species. Obviously, humans are part of the problem, as we've talked about today but we can be part of the solution too. That's right. You might hear the term community science thrown around by researchers in this field. That's a fancy way of saying all of us can have an impact. We can stop setting our pets free, 
Maybe we can be like that angler who stopped someone from dumping goldfish in their neighborhood pond, or we can choose to plant native species. We're also extra sets of eyes for researchers looking for plants, insects, and animals that don't belong. Colin says this connection with people is key to detecting invasive species early and keeping them under control. I would say invasive species is a really strong opportunity to engage people in local stewardship action. Whether it's a local Phragmites control day, a garlic mustard pull, buckthorn removal day, um, you know, you name it. I think it's a great opportunity for us to engage people all across Canada in, in playing a small role in protecting their local environments. And I think it's interesting too, invasive species, because it just it's this cross-sectional issue that just impacts so many people, irrespective of, of political interests and, and beliefs. You know, perhaps what we what we might do for a day job, whether it's agriculture, forestry, or even people who call urban environments home. Invasive species have a touch point and a connection point, whether it's your interests perhaps are motivated primarily for environmental or, or ecological reasons, or purely economical reasons. Invasive species are extremely costly to municipalities all across Canada. And so the more we can do um, in terms of addressing their pathways of spread in in decreasing the number of new species invasions and introductions across Canada, the more we can do to mitigate those, the better and the stronger our environments are going to be. And for me personally, there's nothing more rewarding. One of the projects that I'm really fortunate to get to work on is uh, a project on an aquatic plant called European water chestnut. And there's not very many populations of it. It's still a species I think we can reasonably expect to eradicate in Ontario. And this project in particular occurs in southwestern Ontario in Welland, in a community called Welland. And it's so rewarding to get to see people, you know, whether they're kayakers, paddlers, people who are just out using a park, just pick up a new bit of information and understand that they can have a strong role, whether it's keeping an eyes out, their eyes out and looking for a new patch of this invasive aquatic plant or even helping us pull some on a volunteer day. It's just a really rewarding stewardship opportunity. and especially working with younger people and just seeing the kind of flicker and, and the light switch go on in their head about this is a way that I can positively engage my local environment and, and turn a bit of a challenging situation into a positive situation. It's, it's so rewarding. That's why I love doing the work I do. You can really tell Colin is passionate about what he does. Throughout this series, we've met people tackling the enormous issue of invasive species in Canada. While there's no quick fix, there's some great work being done. Whether invasive species are already here or lying in wait, they are a threat to Canada. We've learned how they spread on land, water, and as we just talked about, with our help. Even though we may be aiding the spread of these species, we are also crucial in stopping them. Thanks for this, Trell. Thanks so much, John. As the story goes, Eugene Shivelin, the president of the American Acclimatization Society, stood in Central Park, New York, on a cool morning in March of 1890. Eugene and his group had decided that all 60 species mentioned in William Shakespeare's works were to be introduced to North America. He said he would not ransom Mortimer. Forbade my tongue to speak of Mortimer, but I will find him. When, when he, he lies, lies asleep, and in his ear I'll hollow Mortimer. Nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer, and give it him to keep his anger still in motion. 
Near him on that cool March morning were cages containing 60 imported European starlings. So, as he stood there, Eugene smiled, knowing that these birds would soar from this place like the bards, plays, sonnets, and poems. They say he released those 60 birds into the wild that day and another 40 birds the next year. While only 32 of them survived, they are said to be the common ancestors of all European starlings seen across Canada and the U.S. to this day. It is a great story, but there are parts of it that are likely false. While Eugene Shivlin, as president of the American Acclimatization Society, did release European starlings, an invasive species, in Central Park in 1890 and 1891, there is no contemporary evidence those releases were motivated by Shakespeare. And there were already some European starlings in North America having been introduced in the 1870s more than a decade before Eugene released his birds. But the release of those 100 birds no doubt had a huge impact and contributed greatly to their spread. In fact, today there are more than 200 million European starlings across North America, crowding out native species, ruining crops, and causing billions of dollars of damage each year. And while the story has been embellished, Eugene Shivlin did release his starlings in Central Park in 1890 and 91, and as a result, became a symbol for the folly of people who knowingly or unknowingly introduced non-native invasive species into the environment. This podcast is sponsored by Trustmakers.ca, helping scientists, experts, and leaders to build trust and support through authentic communication. To find out more about this podcast and the subjects discussed, visit ownthescience.ca. You can subscribe to Own the Science anywhere you listen to podcasts. To reach us on social media, follow us on Twitter at ownthescience. Hosting and research, Trell Kologe. Post-production and voiceover, Julie Sommerfeld. Coordination and scheduling, Brenda Bookbinder. Original music by Aidan Gray. Created, written, and hosted by John Nelson McKay. Own the Science is produced by Trustmakers out of the Center 42 studios in Ottawa. Find out more at trustmakers.ca.